0: Hopefully, from what I said in the last talk, you can gather that something like a Reformation doesn't take place because a monk nails a theological protest to a door. And it doesn't just take place because a certain group of people have certain theological ideas and hold a conference. Uh, As much as I like those things. It was so big. There were so many things taking place in society that built up to this moment in which I think, honestly, any number of people could have stepped and made tremendous change, but certainly a Martin Luther steps in there with his enormous gifts and abilities, almost custom tailored for the moment, uh, and the Reformation begins and takes place, uh, picking up off uh, from where we, we left off, begin, but, but keep in mind always this extraordinarily broad scope of things that no man could have planned, 100% of God, and for which no one man will get the credit, as you'll see in just a moment, and of course you already know. So, what do we have? We have this monk recently hired at a university, new guy on the block, young man, intellectually gifted, uh, but naive, bothered by the local uh, uh, religious outreach center trying to raise money through this, this scheme of indulgences that's connected to the banking industry and the mining industry and all of these things we talked about. And he writes a letter to the bishop and it gets passed on to the Pope. And uh, it comes back to him. And Luther is utterly shocked when it comes back. And he sits down and he writes about this in hindsight uh, at the response of the bishop or of, of the uh, Dominican uh, scholar Priarius uh, about the Pope's authority. And and really in this strong, heavy-handed manner with enormous power behind him trying to crush uh, Martin Luther's little resistance in a small corner of the empire in the way that you might try to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. And Luther is just completely shocked by this and he writes in hindsight this quotation. Good God, has it come to this? that the matter will go before the Pope. But when he read Prierus' response, this is what he had to say. However, our Lord God was gracious to me, and the stupid dolt wrote so much wretched stuff that I had to laugh. And since then, I've never been frightened. Later in his life, Luther would reminisce by saying this. And this is something for all of us to consider. It is through living, indeed through dying and being damned, that one becomes a theologian, not through understanding, reading, or speculation. Later in his life, looking back on these things, Luther would realize that it was not all the books he had read. It was not all the conferences he had been to. It was not all the reading and studying that he had done. It was really through standing firm for the Christian faith and suffering for it. Facing the power of the establishment, whatever it may be, when it's against you, and suffering the consequences anyway because you won't budge in your conscience. Luther says that's what makes a theologian. And that makes me tremble. There's guys like me certainly that read a lot and write a lot, study a lot, talk a lot, and we talk a lot, trust me. Fancy ourselves theologians. but by Luther's standard there are very few theologians today and in fact there have been few throughout history and I would dare say by Luther's standard that most of the greatest theologians probably never read a theology book they would have been the people like Frederick the Wise whose interests who may have had a general devotion to God but whose interests lay elsewhere than the particular study of all the details of the theological debates. I'm not saying by any means theology is not important. I'm saying where do you find the theologians? Where do you find the people for whom the solas of the Reformation really have impact in society? And it's the people who put their lives on the line. The people who put their fortunes on the line, the people who put their neck on the line. Prince Frederick, in Luther's definition, was a theologian. He never really reformed much, if indeed he he maintained a sincere belief and faith in God as his redeemer. He may have still had a lot of the outward trappings of the Roman Catholic society in which he lived, but he withstood the Pope on indulgences, and he protected Luther, and he oversaw by his civil protection the proliferation of theological literature that changed the world, and the university that trained some of the men that trained some of the other men that changed the entirety of Western civilization. As Schaff said, the greatest event in history next to the introduction of Christianity. Prince Frederick the Wise withstood the Pope, put his uh, civil rule on the line. Yeah, he he was in a unique position, don't get me wrong. He had certain powers and liberties that he could exercise in that capacity to withstand the Pope, but it was still a risk. I mean, if the Pope had wanted to, he could have rounded up a lot of the armies of the Roman Empire, what was, left, what was seen as the Corpus Christianum, uh, the Holy Roman Empire at the time, and he could have gone against him and deposed him in some way. He could have had lots of uh, means at his disposal to do a tremendous power play here. Frederick wasn't completely insulated. Likewise with Luther. Luther knew he had some protection from Frederick as he stood there in Saxony and performed his resistance to the Pope on several aspects. And he'd made several bold moves. He knew he had, to some degree, that Prince Frederick had his back. But he did not know that he was protected fully. And in fact, when he goes to the Diet of Worms, the famous incident that that uh, Trevlin read ago where he stands there and says here I stand I can do no other my conscience is captive to the word of God etc etc when he does that and most people don't remember this Worms was a civil council he was standing before the emperor himself and the punishment that stood just on the horizon was burning at the stake And he did not know that I can stand up here and resist this guy and the prince has got my back, I'm gonna be okay. He did not know that. And so when he said those words, he knew full well that his neck was on the line. And the same could be said of many other people. Now many of us know these things. But in the broader Christian society today, it's completely lost. Any concept of resistance unto death, any concept of resistance very much at all, period, is missing. One of my favorite scriptures in in all the Bible is this uh, little line that's almost often overlooked and, and not very popular, not very well known in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. And it's telling us to look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. You know, laying aside every weight and hindrance, running the race, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And it says in verse 4, for you have not resisted unto death, striving against sin. And when I think about a verse like that, I might think of, Luther or someone else like that who really faced this possibility and I'm forced to realize I haven't resisted unto sweat very often. I haven't even resisted temptation consistently. So the concept of resistance is almost entirely absent from the Christian world today. Even in just personal terms let alone when it comes to resisting an institution or resisting a government and things of that nature. And when we teach the history of Ref- as the Reformation as, oh, well, we finally got the chance to read our own Bibles, we miss all of this. We miss that this is an entire society-sweeping view of what it means to be a Christian and that it involves massive risk and massive courage and those kinds of things can only come to you through the grace of God. So let me try to get on with this lecture before this turns into just a sermon. So So Luther has this profound reaction to the Pope and his letter And he's a little hesitant what to do, but not for long. And he he resists, of course. Now, almost immediately after he finds out that he's given 60 days, I believe it was. Oh, no, I take this back. um, He immediately begins um, lecturing. And he's lecturing this time through several books of the Bible, and he's doing it. It's solidifying his views that he's already written in the 95 Theses on, on penance and what is repentance and what does it mean to live to the glory of God and what is faith and uh, what is justification by faith alone and all of these things. He's beginning to solidify much of his doctrines, although what's not often talked about is that Luther, it took him years to reform some of these ideas fully. Even as late as the 1520s, you know, several years after the 95 Theses, Luther still viewed penance as an ecclesiastical uh, sacrament. Uh, he may have reformed it from what the Pope had done selling indulgences, but he still held it as a sacrament. So it took him years to, to figure all of that out. Uh, again, it was going through the text of the Bible uh, in that way. Now, meanwhile, the, he- the Pope was a little bit hesitant to actually move against Luther because of that thing we talked about earlier, the old golden bull system in which the regions in Germany had seven princes who had the the privilege of electing the Holy Roman Emperor. And there was an election coming up and the Pope really, really needed Frederick's vote on his side. So he wasn't about to move against Luther harshly in the uh, immediate term uh, before he could get as much as he could out of Frederick. And so there was, what happened was he actually eventually got his man, and Charles V was elected as the Holy Roman Emperor. But it happened, there was so much resistance from the German side that that actually got several, uh, what would you say, uh, measures in their favor in this kind of negotiated vote. Uh, German lands uh, retained the German language as their official language. And so the Pope couldn't come in there and, and overrule everything in Latin and run, run some kind of bureaucratic regime in Latin and, and take over. Uh, that was very important. Uh, we all know that the German language or the, the common language of the people was a key part of the Reformation because Ger- Luther was able to translate the Bible into German, get it down to the level of the people and people could read it. Uh, we don't know that that was actually a political point that was arch- already settled in his favor before that happened. Uh, likewise there could be no foreign troops or foreign agents stationed in the German regions and in particularly in Saxony because uh, again this was one of the the agreements. Uh, so what happened was what you see is that Frederick and some of the other German princes are exercising a little thing we call liberty. Again, there's some risk in doing this but in this case they got it in the form of an agreement. Uh, But they know that long-term this is not the Pope's desire. This is something we're eventually going to have to stand for. And of course the crown jewel in all of this is Frederick's University that we mentioned earlier which was the first established independently of the Pope and for Frederick the Wise it was absolutely his baby. Above all things, he would stand for this university. So after this election takes place, then they began to try to pressure and proceed against Luther, and it was Frederick who stood up and demanded, Luther will not become prey to any papal scheme without full due process. Folks, there's your reformation right there. I said it and you just missed it I don't know maybe you didn't miss it that's your reformation when you have the magistrate stand up on your side and say no not without due process the reformation just happened in all of this every time someone stands up and says no it is the reformation That's the most Protestant word of all Protestant things. No. We will not submit to the Pope. No, we will not do that. No, we will not have a papal university. We'll have our own university. Thank you. And the Pope says, I don't like that. And you say, what are you going to do about it? I mean, we're not trying to be Clint Eastwood here or anything. But sometimes you have to take a stand we'll hopefully get to that a little more in a minute so in the meantime a couple of events take place in 1518 just months after the 95 theses there is a meeting of the Augustinian order in Heidelberg Luther decides because he's an Augustinian these are all his buddies right he goes to attend this and he's speaking there and he begins to talk about the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory And in doing so, he implicitly strikes against a lot of papal ideas. When you begin talking about the theology of a cross, you're talking about Christ's humiliation and his suffering. And the Catholic Church is fine with that as long as they have him up on the wall in the form of a crucifix and they can charge indulgences to get access to it. Luther starts talking about, no, we participate in this ourselves in the form of suffering following Christ's example. Now some of the monks could have accepted that. But when he starts talking about the theology of glory as something that comes from God's grace, all of a sudden that's robbing from the Pope's glory and this is beginning to cause tensions. Long story short, about this time uh, Tetzel comes into town and begins to uh, issue a set of theses on the Pope's authority and they begin to pressure Luther, he leaves town early Long, uh, more importantly, in the following year, uh, Luther is beginning to get more and more popular. This is becoming a, a little bit of a, an issue socially and politically, and so uh, the uh, chief uh, theologian, if you will, in in the in the region, is commissioned to attack Luther, but he does so indirectly by targeting. Uh, one of the senior lecturers at the Wittenberg University named Andreas Karlstadt. And uh, Eck, Johannes Eck, challenges Karlstadt to a series of uh, debates. And they arrange a lot of negotiations. It takes almost a year's worth of negotiations before they get this debate. And they finally have what, what we know today as the Leipzig debates in 1519. Karlstadt rides into town and part of his negotiations was he wasn't a quick thinker on his feet So he wanted all of his books and notes with him and he rides into town with an entire cartload of books and uh, Can you imagine going to a debate where you know there's just tables of books spread out and the guys Oh, hold on let me get back to you and just hold on You know he's flipping his book, and and this creates one of the most boring debates in history And everybody knows that this is just happening because the Catholic Church is trying to get at Luther, and Karlstadt is here gumming up the works with all of his books. And in the middle of this somewhere, Luther is attending, and somehow Eck was able to draw Luther into the debate as well. And Luther, uh, uh, in the process of the debate, is much more terse than Karlstadt is much quicker on his feet. And the students love this because Luther is, you know, from the Perspective of the Bible is just eating the guy's lunch But from the perspective of the Catholic Church Eck is getting everything he wants because he forces Luther into admitting he believes the Pope can err And he forces Luther into admitting that he thinks the Council of Constance Can err well oh, now you've gone beyond a conciliarist. You're not even saying merely that the councils can uh, uh, overrule a pope you're saying now that something can overrule councils That not even councils are infallible so he really forces Luther into a corner here to, to show his hand and Luther kinda has to live with this at this point point. Uh, and so the cat's kinda out of the bag and uh, Luther begins writing at this point now I'm, I've skipped a date here somewhere and forgive me for not writing it down But uh, uh, yeah, it was at this point, Luther knew the cat was out of the bag. So he sits down at this time and he starts writing tracts. The first two he writes in Latin. But one of them is called The Freedom of the Christian Man. And it's a response to the papal bull. Uh, And in that, he basically denies that good works are tied to our salvation. He basically said good works should flow from a converted heart. Okay, controversial, but not, not the icing on the cake yet. Then he writes another one called the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. In this, he denies that uh, the sacraments are all sacraments, and he whittles them down to from this, the Catholic seven down to three. And at this point, he still believes penance is a sacrament. But then he does something very much novel. Very much Protestant, very much in view of everything we've talked about up to the date, up to this point. He sits down in 1520 and he writes a tract called Address to the Nobility of the German Nation. And he writes that tract in the German language. And that signifies several things. First of all, it's written in German. He's done with the Pope at this point. He's beyond the ecclesiastical establishment at this point. I'm no longer talking to you people. I think at this point, at least by this point, Luther has realized he's not getting anywhere with that angle and that something much more radical has to take place. And so he writes to the people And that is revolutionary. Because now he's not, in in the eyes of the authorities, at least, he's not just challenging their authority. Now he's trying to incite a revolution or a rebellion. And there is nothing worse that you can do in the eyes of an established authority than to get the people to rise up in rebellion. Secondly, he he addresses this specifically to the German nation. He's now speaking to the people in a particular way that we, we might look at today as nationalistic. And that kind of flies in the face of everything the Holy Roman Empire stood for. It's not the Pope's empire anymore. It's not this transnational ecclesiastical authority. Luther is much more mundane than that now. Luther is much more earthly, talking to his native people in their native tongue. And finally, the most probably the most important part, he addresses it to the nobility. And that is I'm done with you ecclesiastical people, you scholars, you entrenched authorities, you bureaucrats. I'm talking to the people who have the money and the connections. I'm talking to the people that own the mines, and the people that run the printing presses, and the people that own the property, because ultimately you are the people that matter. When ecclesiastical authorities begin to lord it over you people, they have overstepped their bounds, and they have effectively installed a tyranny that really honestly is no different than Sharia. And so Luther is just, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, Luther at this point is unhinged. He's talking about freedom. He's changing the sacraments. He's chipping away at the church's authority and its, its means of control. He's chipping away at the very idea of the corpus christianorum, the great society of Christians, of the great Christian nation which the church, the Roman church, saw as itself. Well, this is everything we hold dear. And Luther's chipping away at it. And so this, of course, is when the papal bull is issued. And in one of the great ironies of history, the the papal bull, which uh, the the word bull comes from our English, or, well, it comes from the same root as our English word bulletin, so it just means a notice or a piece of paper, basically, from the pope. But historically, all papal encyclicals and bulls are remembered by name from the first two or three words of the text, and in this case, in Latin, those words are "Exsurge Domine." Arise, O Lord. And it's from the psalm that is calling God to arise in judgment of his enemies and vindicate his heritage. And this is the Pope writing this. And one of the great ironies of history, the Pope writes this bull not realizing he's calling judgment down on his own head. And so this bull is issued. Luther is given 60 days to recant. And as we said earlier, anytime you have a tyrannical establishment authority, Uh, you can guarantee that it won't follow its own rules and before those 60 days were up Luther was declared heretic in Rome officially Uh, he still had the 60 days uh, outside of that Uh, but um, I had some notes I wanted to get back to uh, outside of that in which to act Uh, and Luther by this point realizing this is a you know, it's an all-or-nothing game, leads the students, along with Philip Melanchthon and other faculty and the students, leads them out with the papal bull to the edge of the river and has a nice big book burning. And he burns the papal bull, he burns the uh, a book of canon law, which was the equivalent of burning the Constitution of the United States or something of that nature, uh, it's just an in-your-face activity. And the students uh, called the bull, uh, and they made a pun out of it in the Latin word, bulla. And they said, here's your paper, bulla, which in Latin means bubbles, and they tossed it into the river. It's just air, it's just passing away, it's nothing. It's vanishing, it's the words of men. And so you have this, basically revolution is, at this point, it's, it's complete. So much else is going to happen at this. We know the Diet of Worms is going to happen. The conclusion's already been made. Luther's given his 60 days the Diet of Worms. He's summoned to the Diet of Worms. He stands there. Are you going to recant? I can't recant. My conscience is all captive to the word of God. Uh, it's neither right nor safe to go against conscience. And all of those things we've talked about this whole time culminate in that moment in which he exercises that and he knows that he's going to be declared an outlaw but he knows essentially as he leaves there that he's got sixty days to run and hide but the prince knows he's got a side plan to kidnap Luther on the way home and hide him in the Warburg Castle from the authorities and the rest is history. Luther translates the Bible and honestly at that point the greatest and most important of Luther's work is done. He lives for another, I mean, after 1520, he lives for another 26 years, I believe, and writes tons of material. I mean, his collected works in English span like 100 volumes. It's just enormous. But most of it was already done. And most of it was done by people you've never heard of. Most of it was done by the miners and the bankers and the princes and the people who are willing to put their neck on the line and then a Luther comes along willing to put his neck on the line and we see God blesses the endeavor because no man's gonna get the glory for it it's God's work and, and, and I'm, I, I just teach it this way because to me it's fascinating how no man could have ever planned this how, don't get me wrong scores of men tried to plan this some men tried to carry it out and they were murdered but no man could have made it happen the way it happened because it takes the work of God and that lesson is for us today I mean things had to happen for Luther's reformation to happen things had to happen hundred and fifty years prior to that God was working, planning up to that moment. What do you know that God's done a hundred years ago that's going to change the world tomorrow because of your faithfulness? Because of your refusal to compromise? Because of your refusal to give in and do things the way that the establishment or the world or whoever else has to do things. So... You've got to have that perspective in mind. Reformation doesn't happen because a Martin Luther comes along. Reformation happens when God's people in their particular callings live faithfully. And nothing else. And it's not our view of Martin Luther that needs to expand. It's our view of all the callings and all the spheres of life that needs to expand. And this is what happens in the Reformation. Now let me change gears here just a little bit uh, to talk about uh, another perspective on this. Luther standing before the Diet of Orms. Can't go against conscience. Only scripture. No pope's going to tell me what to do. No theologian's going to tell me what to do. My father's not going to tell me what to do. in his case. Civil authorities aren't going to tell me what to do. I have to say what I'm going to do based on Scripture. And that has come to be known as the doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment. And this is not to take anything at all away from the importance of being in a body of believers and having elders and having authorities and fathers and, and all of those things that God gives us, all of those great things. But if you believe what you believe because your father taught it to you, you are not in the Reformed tradition. If you believe what you believe because some teacher taught it to you or some pastor you like because I said it, because any theolo- because your favorite preacher or theologian said it, not good enough ultimately you have the right and you also have the duty of private judgment you must discern these truths for yourself and assent to them believe them believe them to the point of conviction that you are convicted they are true and you are convinced to give your life in all that you do for them, in service. And when you do, you can turn an establishment upside down. And don't get me wrong, they may put you to the stake too. God is glorified in both in how he rules history. He is just as glorified in John Huss as he is in Martin Luther. One went to the stake and one is spared. But you have the duty to do that. You may not have the crisis moment in front of a council of worms and the emperor himself where you have to answer that question under intense pressure and risk. You will have an even greater judgment and this is a theme, I want to move on to so much more, but this is a theme that keeps coming back in all of this. And it's the concept of the presence of God. And the concept of having a mediator. And that, as I said earlier, all of the solas in the context of the Reformation came down to papal authority. When Priarius responded to Luther's 95 Theses, he had one theme, Papal authority. When Prince Frederick founded his university, the great offense about it was that it defied papal authority. Soli Deo Gloria was in the context of all the mediators the Pope had decreed to be an authority for the people, mediators. And the great answer from Luther was, we don't have any mediators except Christ. I don't need a priest. It is blasphemous to go to a priest as a mediator. I don't need to go to a pope or a church or a council or anything. I have the duty to know God on my own through Scripture. I have the right to defy all those others if I think they're wrong. Based on Scripture. But I have the duty to do it too. There are no mediators. But that means that I also must stand in the presence of a holy God. And we do that, of course, with Jesus Christ as our mediator. But this theme shows up all through the Reformation. One of my favorite stories is just a little vignette. I have never seen actually much detail on it, but it's when Luther was first ordained as a monk in the Catholic system, part of that process is you have to perform your first Mass. And you all know in the Roman Catholic Mass, the the teaching is that this actually turns into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This sacrifice is performed afresh and the stuff you're holding in your hands is the body of Christ. You are literally holding the presence of God. And Luther with his acute conscience understood this that he was trembling with fear and it made him only more fearful because then he thought he was going to drop it. And you can imagine that if you really took Roman Catholic teaching seriously what level of fear that would impose upon you and the doctrine of christ our mediator takes that away but it doesn't make it any less holy or any less real and in fact in many ways to me it's even more intense because the phrase that came out of the reformation is coram deo before the face of God. You do all things now before the face of God. It's not just what you do in the church on Sunday. It's not just the mass. It's not just when the priest holds up a wafer of bread and walk parades it around the whole church. This is the body of Christ. It's so much more real than that. And it's so much more inescapable than that. Everything you do is before the face of God. And for every one of those things you have the right and the duty of the private judgment of what Scripture means and how it applies. And God's Word teaches us from the beginning to the end that His Word is His presence in our lives. And we, we have this great reformation and we get the Bible and our language out of it and we all celebrate this as a great triumph in history. And I think sometimes we just treat the Bible so casually. We carry our copies around and, and all of that. And you go into a Bible bookstore and there are just shelves of these things. Of course, now it's online in hundreds of translations. We've got, what, 30, 40 more uh, English translations and all different varieties. And all kinds of study Bibles. You want a study Bible from your favorite preacher? you got your MacArthur Bible. And I just saw the Spurgeon Bible just came out. It's probably better than some of the other ones. But there's it's another one. The ESV Study Bible. And the Women's Studies Devotional Bible. And you've got the Life Application Study Bible. And pretty soon you'll have the American Vision Worldview Study Bible. Which will be the best of all of them. Guaranteed. <laughs> but we've got all these Bibles. We've got Bibles coming out of our ears. And it's almost like... We take them for granted. And I remember many, many years ago, I was at a Ligonier conference. I was a big fanboy of R.C. Sproul Sr. when I first became Reformed. I read all of his books and went to his conferences. And while I was there, one of the exhibitors in this wonderful conference they put on was uh, this gentleman who has a vast collection of uh, historic first editions of all these famous Reformed books and Bibles. He has all these 15th, 16th, 17th century Bibles. I mean some of them sell for thousands of dollars and they're sitting right there on the table like conference attendees could walk by and pick them up and flip thumb through them. It's just phenomenal to me as a young reformed guy to pick up a, an original copy of Tyndale's New Testament in English and I'm sitting there and I, I had this visceral moment where I was just taken back thinking this guy died because of this. This guy was killed This guy was murdered so that I could stand here and hold this. And this profound wave of guilt came over me that I had these Bibles coming out my ears and I take them for granted. You know that a guy, that people shed their blood so that you could hold this thing. So that you could have God's presence through his word in your life for every aspect of life. And how silly that makes the entirety of Catholic Church history look. And all of the robes and crosses and the accoutrements and the things on the altar and and all of the trappings of their liturgy and all of the masses and the crazy ideas they have about uh, the body and blood of Christ and all these crazy teachings of how sad, it is that the millions of people through history were held in bondage. I just had this visceral moment that that one thing, a guy gave his life to change that one thing in history. And uh, we take it for granted. That you can have God's presence in your life. And it really is his presence. You study his word and what does it tell you? Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Every man at every hour is naked before that Word. It's not words on a printed page. It's words that will transform your life. It is words that if you believe them will inspire courage and change in your life, in your business, in your society. There are words that will inspire you to endure torture and bloodshed for their author because they are living and active. That's the Reformation. Reformation. When I look back on the Reformation, I don't just see theological titles and books and stuff like that. I see men's lives and societies changed, businesses transformed, technology invented because people believed that. And that's what I want again today. And you can have it again today. I, t- I hear, I've been hearing all year about Reformation 500. And I hear people say, what does Reformation 2.0 look like? We've had Reformation 500. What's the next 500 look like? And I've not seen many yet that even get to the point. Other than to rehearse that Martin Luther stood before this council as my conscience captive. Who applies it today? It's got to be applied. Anyway, I'm, I've got so much to cover in so little time. I want to do something now, change gears just a little bit, and talk about what every good Calvinist does on Reformation Day, and that is to say, yeah, Luther, he's a great guy, let's talk about Calvin now. I know 1517, it's all about Martin Luther, but let's talk about Calvin. And the things that Martin Luther instituted in Geneva spilled naturally, right, not in Geneva, in Wittenberg, spilled naturally into Calvin's Geneva real quickly just to set the stage for the third talk is what happened socially from these doctrines of the Reformation? I'm here to talk about Sola Scriptura. Yes, it completely changed the authority structure of how men viewed what is their ultimate authority. That's a huge social change. There are no mediators. I don't have to go to Pope, I don't have to go to priest, I don't have to go to church, I don't have to go Doesn't mean you have don't have to go to church. You need to go to church. I mean, you don't have to go to the church for authority. You don't have to go to the civil authorities. You don't have to go to anybody for your mediator. Your ultimate authority is right there on those living words in front of you. And I'm here to talk about sola gratia, by grace alone. Again, you don't need mediators. It's not about works and pleasing God through works. And doing what the priest tells you to do to earn merit. It's not about those things. It's purely by grace alone. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the next talk. And I'm here to talk about Solidale Gloria. Glory to God alone. Again, there are no mediators in any sphere of life. It is purely God's grace and your private judgment applied to His glory in those things. Two of these things stand out tremendously in Calvin's Geneva that we'll talk about. One of them is Calvin's view of what the kingdom of God is. And the second one is how does the doctrine of justification apply socially? And believe it or not, it does have social applications and they're profound. And we'll talk about both of those things in my third talk. Thank you again. Thank you.